Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in Romans. I'm going to do the whole chapter 13 today, verses 1 through 14. Our context is this. In chapter 12, Paul has just finished exhorting the Roman Christians to, shall we say, a high level of personal sanctification. He started out by saying you need to present yourself a living sacrifice on the altar of God. And then he showed how the Roman Christians could do that by using their spiritual gifts that God had given them to serve their brethren. And then he talked about the marks of a true Christian and all sanctification type stuff. And we go to chapter 13. He's still on that theme of how the Christians of, at Rome could be called to higher levels of righteousness practically as they live out their daily lives. And he talks about how they should submit to the law. Now, he starts out by talking about how they should submit to the governing authorities, the civil law, the judicial law, and then he talks about the Christian's relationship to the law of Moses. And he's going to say that the way you keep the law of Moses is you love one another. So we start with Romans 13.1. Everyone must submit to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist are instituted by God. Now, all of the governing authorities that Paul talked about now at this time were, of course, pagan, as they always are. Now, it would be a tempting excuse for Christians not to obey these pagan authorities because Christians could think, well, these guys aren't believers. We don't need to, support, to submit to them. They're not righteous like we are. And Paul's trying to disabuse themselves of that temptation. So, even though these governments were pagan, Paul says at the end of verse 1, these institutions, these governing authorities are quote-unquote instituted by God. So even persecuting pagan governments were instituted by God. And notice that the pagan government that Paul is asking the Romans to submit themselves to, the government of the Roman Empire, that's the same government that executed Paul unjustly at the end of the 60s, not to mention Peter. But Paul himself is writing, submit yourself to the governing authorities, and that government executed him. Governments instituted by God, Paul says in 13.1, or the scriptures say the same thing, John 19.10-11. This is Jesus before Pilate at his trial. So Pilate said to him, said to Jesus, you're not talking to me. Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? You would have no authority over me at all, Jesus answered him, if it hadn't been given you from above. If it had not been given you from above. So Jesus is saying here that the authority that Pilate had was given by God. And Pilate used that authority to execute Jesus. Again, unjust. But still, the authority is from God. Now, sometimes those who hold authority don't exercise it justly, of course. But nonetheless, the authority itself is from God. And so, of course, this presents hard cases. Were these governments established by God? Now, remember... The, those governing authorities that exist are instituted by God. Paul is writing in the times of the Roman Empire. Now, the Roman Empire was authoritarian, to, totalitarian in some cases. It advocated slavery or sanctioned slavery. It was anti-Christian. It persecuted the Christians. But Paul said, submit to it. And notice the Roman church was just about to be persecuted ruthlessly by a crazy guy, a crazy emperor, about 10 years. Paul says, submit to it. Well, he didn't know that Nero was coming, of course, but still, that's what the government was capable of. Capable of. It was not the ideal situation. If you want to live under a government, that's not the one I would choose to live under. But Paul said, submit to it. We could look at the Islamic Republic of Iran. Those people, that country is run by a bunch of nut jobs, a bunch of murdering terrorists who hate Christians. Are we supposed to submit to that? Well, how about North Korea? I had a friend who smuggled himself into North Korea. 
He said there was no electricity at night. You go into a bookstore. The only bookstore, the only book you saw for sale was that of the Korean boy in pajamas, whose name I can't ever remember, Kim Il Seal Suk or whatever his name is. And the Christians there were so poor that they never had meat. They just ate rice. They had one little piece of chicken that they gave to my friend who had smuggled himself across the border, across the Chinese border. And I read a book about a guy who escaped from the North Korean gulag. And I'm telling you, though, that prison seemed to me to be worse even than the Stalags, the the Russian communist Stalags that you read about, that Solzhenitsyn wrote about. I've read some of his books, Ivan Dasonovich, One Day in the Life of Ivan Dasonovich. And don't, you know, those are bad. It was all very, very bad. But North Korea, oh, my gosh, it's just incredibly brutal. Are we supposed to obey those laws? Are the Christians supposed to obey those laws? How about the United States of America? Our country has established sexual perversion as marriage in both its culture and its law. Are we supposed to obey? Well, the fact that people abuse power and and create horrible governments does not mean that we're not supposed to obey the government. I obey the government of America, even though I hate it for what it's done with its sexual perversion. When I was in China, I obeyed the government of China, even though I hated what they were doing. They were aborting babies all over the place, and they're persecuting Christians. Because you got to realize, you know, all governments have got to maintain order, which means they have to perse- they have to prosecute rapists, murderers, and that helps me as well as the average, as well as everybody else in the country. So, Paul, I'm I'm just making a strong case here. We're supposed to submit to the government. I've, I've heard people say they're not going to pay their taxes because of the government committing abortion here in America. You can't do that. Oh, I remember there was the anti-war movement. We're not going to pay taxes to the government because the money's going to support the Vietnam War. You can't do that. You have to do, you have to You have to honor the government. And later on, Paul's going to say, pay the taxes that are due. Because Paul does not want the church to be identified with revolutionary political movements, which would have destroyed the church. So, now, I will make a caveat here. If those government institutions... Those governing governing authorities say that you can't preach the gospel. Well, then, to Hades with the government, you preach the gospel. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Here's some other scriptures about obeying the government. Titus 3.1. Remind them, Paul is telling Titus to remind the Christians on Crete, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to obey. 1 Peter 2.13-14, Peter says to his readers, submit to every human authority. Because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him, to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. Again, most governments do attack criminals, and that's good for society. The word to submit, by the way, is hupotasso. That's a military term. And a military term, when you talk about submission to a military officer, that's a strong, the strong sense of submission. Soldiers are notorious for taking orders without considering the consequences. Now, this attitude of submission that Paul is pushing real hard here was a far different attitude that the average Jew held in the Roman Empire. They were constantly revolting against the Roman Empire. And they finally got their whole nation destroyed because of that rebellion in AD 70 when the Romans said, that's enough, we're going to take you out. And so this vindicated Paul's position. The Christians never were involved in radical revolt against the Roman Empire as the Jews were. Now, we're supposed to submit, but at what point should submission end and civil disobedience begin? Let's look in Acts 4, 18 through 20. This is Peter before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, the governing authorities, instituted by God. 
So they, the Sanhedrin, called for them, that's Peter and John, I believe it was, Peter and John, and ordered them not to preach or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. For we are unable to stop speaking what we have seen and heard. So they deliberately and directly disobeyed government orders because it, it had to do with the preaching of the gospel. I gladly disobeyed the Chinese government's strictures against me preaching the gospel when I was in China. When I signed employment contracts with the college, they said, you will do nothing to violate the religious laws of China. You will not talk about God. You will not talk about Jesus. I mean, they had it in the contracts. And I said, okay. And I went and did it anyway. I'm not going to listen to that. I mean, I was careful about it. And I never I never was in anybody's face about it. Like some people, some American Christians in China that I had heard about when I was over there, they went out of their way to be obnoxious and get, got themselves arrested and kicked out of the country. I never did anything like that. But when I was private 101 and the... And the bugs, the the walls didn't have ears. I talked to people who would listen about Jesus, and I, I knew it was violating the law. And I, I and, and you know, to this day, I still don't feel guilty about it. Acts five twenty eight through twenty nine. This is the next day. I think it was. Peter is back before the Sanhedrin. Didn't we? This is the Sanhedrin talking. Strictly order you not to teach in this name. And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to bring this man's blood on us. In other words, the Sanhedrin was rightly saying, "You guys disobeyed our orders. Now you're preaching everywhere, and you're and you're blaming us for killing Jesus." Verse 29, Acts 5. But Peter and the apostles replied, "We must obey God rather than men. At some point, a an unjust government must be disobeyed." I told a lawyer at my last teaching job in China, I said, if the government drafts, if I had a daughter of 18 years old and the government tried to draft her and send her into the military, I said I'd be on the first first plane to Canada if I could get out of the country. If not, I'd drive. I'd get out. I'd get her out because no government's going to draft my, my daughter to fight in a war. And this lawyer looked at me like I was crazy. He was a lawyer, you know, and he worked for the Justice Department. And he, he started hemming and hawing about that. I said, well, look at Martin Luther King. He disobeyed the law that was unjust. And it would have made it even more deliciously ironic is the lawyer I was talking to was black. He would, if it hadn't been for Martin Luther King disobeying, I mean, this guy might not have been eating in the cafeteria with us. I don't know. But he just couldn't handle the thought that I said that I would disobey the government. I will. I, you know, at some point, I hope it never comes to that. I never have deliberately disobeyed the government. But if they start, if they, if they start violating my rights as a father... Or as a Christian, then, uh-uh, not going to obey. If they violate my rights as a taxpayer and they spend my money on stupid stuff, well, I'll have to submit to that. Romans 13:2, Paul continues, So then the one who resists the authority is, is opposing God's command, and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. Now, what kind of judgment are they going to bring by disobeying? That could be direct divine judgment. Or it could be punishment by the governing authorities. The NIV Study Bible says that's the more likely option. Here's the kind of things that you can bring on your head by re rebelling against the government and, and engaging in criminal activity. Guns, dogs, handcuffs, batons, riot gear, tear gas, tasers, jails, you know, a lot of bad stuff. I can give you a hard case. What if you're a Christian in Hong Kong and you got the oppressive Chinese government doing all the stuff they're doing, and the Hong Kong people are revolting against freedom. I support those protests like crazy, but would I get involved in it as a Christian? I don't think so. I hate to even say it. I don't think so, because I want them to win. I want them to win against that those SOBs in Beijing.
But still, you know, our king, we're in the kingdom. We're here fighting a different fight. We're not fighting for political freedom. We're fighting for spiritual freedom. And if the occasion demands it or if, the, or if tactics or expediency demands it, we need to not get involved in things that are going to hurt the progress of the gospel. Now, Paul says the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command, God's law. He's resisting God. You resist the government, you resist God. But now that, of course, assumes that the magistrate is executing lawful authority against crime. I've already said this, but I'll say it again. This does not mean that Christians have no right to disobey governments that infringe upon their conscience. Here's a quote from John Gill, backing me up. Now, he was writing in the 1800s. This is not to be understood as if magistrates were above the laws and had a lawless power to do as they will without opposition, for they are under the law and liable to the penalty of it in case of disobedience as others. And when they make their own will a law or exercise a lawless tyrannical power in defiance of the laws of God and of the land to the endangering of the lives, liberties, and properties of subjects, they may be resisted. Of course, John Calvin was big on that. He said you could resist civil authority if necessary. But note, as Steve Atkinson points out, civil disobedience is not armed insurrection. And if one does civil disobedience, a Christian needs to be prepared to suffer civil punishment. Now, this is the standard civil disobedience doctrine as practiced by Martin Luther King and I think Gandhi before him. Martin Luther King resisted these black power radicals who wanted to tear up the cities and burn, baby burn, you know, start riots and all that stuff. He said, no, don't do that. He said, break the law and then go to jail and then call attention to the injustice of it. And that, of course, is a lot different than starting armed revolution. So nowhere do Christians have the right to start armed revolution. Here's a quote from John MacArthur in his Christian and Government. Russian Baptist pastor Georgie Vins lived most of his ministry under the Soviet Union. His father, an American missionary to Russia, was martyred by the Soviets in 1936. Georgie said, quote, We must obey every law in our land, whether it appears to us to be just or unjust, except when we are told that we cannot worship God or obey the Scripture. But if we are persecuted, put into prison, or killed, it will be a result of our faith in Jesus Christ, not because we violated some law in our nation. And there's the proper position to take. Romans 13.3, Paul continues, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have its approval. That's why when I was in China, I was very careful not to spit on the sidewalk when I wasn't supposed to, or whatever it was that I might could have done. I tried to, of course, I, w I wasn't driving. I did get pulled one time for riding on the back of a student's bicycle. The cop in Shanghai gave me a very nasty lecture, but at the time I could not understand any Chinese, and so I didn't have the foggiest notion of what he was saying, but I could tell by the look on his face it wasn't pleasant. Well, okay, I didn't know. But generally, I obeyed the laws. I kept, my, you know, I had my passports with me when I needed it, and I did what I was supposed to do. And hey, after a while, I didn't worry me too much that the government was full of a bunch of thugs, a bunch of oppressive, civil liberties-denying, anti-Christian thugs. It just didn't bother me so much because I tried to obey the law when I, when I had to. I know one guy. I had a friend of mine was smuggling Bibles into China, and he was with another guy that was heading the 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 visit, the the mission, and the head of the team saw an open door to get past customs to go from Hong Kong into mainland China, and he just walked through totally illegally, and he told my friend, come on through, and my friend did it, but he didn't want to. He wanted to go through customs, which I think would have been the wiser thing to do. Well, this guy broke a law, and if he got caught, hoo-hoo, he didn't get caught, 
but it sure wouldn't have looked good if he hadn't if he had got called. So, but notice that rules are not a terror to good conduct, but who are they a terror to? They are a terror to bad conduct. Paul says in this verse, which means that the government is supposed to scare the ever-loving crap out of criminals and not spend ten years to execute capital murderers or allow appeals to go on for 20 and 30 years. That's one thing I liked about the Chinese government. They found a murderer, bang, it was over. There was a guy in Shanghai, he was he was targeting young girls in their 20s with long black, well, of course the hair was black, but long hair, long hair down to the mid-shoulder, mid-back, below their shoulders, and he would target them, and he would get a ball and peen hammer and just hit them on the head and kill them. And they kill, he killed two or three girls that way, and the whole huge city of Shanghai was in abject terror. Well, they finally caught the guy, and by golly, he was dead within the week. And not only that, they had a noose around his neck and put him on TV so that everybody could see, this is the guy who did it. He's gone. Bam. And then they executed him the next day. There's something about that that's refreshing. Government's supposed to be a terror to criminals. Of course, now it's true that you need to have due process and trials to make sure the criminal actually did it. I don't know if they did that in the case of this case in Shanghai. I hope they did. Do what is good and you will have its approval. Ecclesiastes 8.5a says this, The one who keeps a command will not experience anything harmful. That's a book of wisdom. Now, first of all, uh, now let's notice one caveat here. When Paul says, do what is good and you will have its approval, the NIV study Bible points out that Paul is not saying this will be true all the time. He's making a general statement. Because, I mean, after all, Paul was doing what it was good, and a lot of times he didn't have the government's approval as they tried to throw him in jail. On the other hand, a lot of times his good conduct got him out of the magistrate's clutches. <laughs> so, so it's the general rule. We go to Romans 13:4. For government is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For government is God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. Now that word sword, what does that mean? A sword is used to chop someone's head off. So when Paul says here that the government carries the sword for good reason, he means the government executes capital punishment. And this means that God is being our servant when it does that. It, and Paul says the government is God's servant for our good when it carries the sword. When the government executes capital murder, murderers, for government is God's servant and avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. There's the terror right there. So governments have a divinely instituted function of capital punishment. And the Bible says that a lot of times you'll say, well, that was in the law, but it's not for today. Nonsense. Capital punishment was instituted before the Mosaic law in Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds man's blood, his blood will be shed by man. For God made man in his image. God is trying to protect his creation made in his image to keep people from murdering innocent people, and so he says, you, we got to have capital punishment. You kill an innocent man, you're going to die. So maybe you better think about twice about doing that. And then during the law, in the law, capital punishment was instituted, Exodus 21:12. Whoever strikes a person so that he dies must be put to death. And then, of course, after the law, the law is done away with by the time Paul is writing in Romans 13:4, our verse here, and Paul says, hey, the government's got the sword, right to capital punishment. Now, I saw an article about a the leader of a group called Conservatives Against Capital Punishment. And I thought, well, that's great. Conservatives have traditionally been in favor of capital punishment. And her whole argument was is the law, sometimes the mistakes are made, and people are wrongly convicted, and, the, and DNA evidence has helped prove that. Well, first point of all, 
The first point to make is that now that we have DNA evidence, there's less likely there are going to be mistakes made by a jury. But even beyond that, yeah, mistakes are made. So what do you do? You make a mistake and you throw somebody in jail for 50, 60, 70 years, his whole life. So maybe we just ought to quit having the law at all because it's possible to have mistakes. Uh, the medical profession makes mistakes. Do we do away with doctors? Police make mistakes. Do we do away with the police? There's no profession on earth that doesn't make mistakes. And it's tragic when it happens and you do everything you can to keep it from happening and you put the burden of proof on the prosecution instead of on the defendant. Every now and then, something goes awry. But bad cases don't make good law. Capital punishment, in my opinion, is extremely necessary to... Not, not for deterrence. People argue deterrence. But for justice. How can government be a servant of God? This is comforting to know that God uses governments as his servant. Isaiah 45, 1, the Lord says this to Cyrus, his anointed. Now, Cyrus was a pagan emperor, but Cyrus was used by God. Cyrus is even said to be anointed by God. And when you anoint somebody, that means you put oil on him as a, as a, a symbol of his office as when you anoint a king. So Cyrus was anointed. Anointed by whom? By God, his anointed, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him, to disarm kings, to open the doors before him, and the gates will not be shut. And of course, Cyrus eventually let the people of Israel out of the Babylonian captivity when Cyrus the Persian conquered Babylonia, 539 B.C., and then 538, the Jews were on their way back. Well, in 538, I think, Cyrus issued the decree, you can go back to Jerusalem, and the next year, I think it was, 537 B.C., the Jews headed back in to end the Babylonian captivity. And so God used Cyrus for that. Cyrus was God's servant. The government is God's servant. And if you get depressed about your government, and I spend 23 out of 24 hours of the day being depressed by my government, I've been doing this since I was six years old, just remember, the servant, the government is God's servant, and he'll use it. He'll turn the governor which way he wants to turn the governor. Now, Paul says here that the government is God's servant for your good. Well, let's take the example of the Roman Empire. How was the Roman Empire good for the Christians? It was pagan and it hated Christianity, and sometimes it even demanded the pinch of the incense on the altar to the emperor, and that means that you had to commit adultery, and if you didn't, it'd kill you. Well, the Roman Empire created the Pax Romana for a couple hundred years. How long was that? Maybe, I forgot, 150, 200 years there at the beginning, and so there was no wars. And they also paved roads all all the out through the empire so they could send troops up and down the empire like we did with our interstate so we could carry nuclear missiles up and down the interstates. They did the same thing with the paved roads. So travel is safe. And guess what? Preachers of the gospel can now travel all over the roads in the Roman Empire and spread the gospel all over the place. Not to mention that the Roman Empire required, because of all that travel and trade, it required a common trade language, Koine Greek. Well, guess what? The Gospels are written. The Excuse me, the New Testament is written in Koine Greek, and that facilitated the spread of the Gospel. So God worked all everything out with that nasty government, that nasty Roman government, to spread the Gospel. Now, notice Paul here says in verse 4, government is God's avenger, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. Now, remember Paul in the previous chapter talked about how you're never supposed to take revenge on anyone. Never repay evil for evil. But now, he says, the government should repay evil for evil because the government is an avenger for one who does wrong. And in fact, this is how God's wrath often comes on those who wait for it rather than taking revenge. Romans 12:19, last chapter, Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Well, the wrath of God could be exercised through the 
terror of the government, of the civil government that strikes terror on the person that abused the Christian or deprived the Christian of his rights or harmed the Christian. The government can take care of it because the government exercises the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Paul says that in chapter 12, verse 19 of Romans, the previous chapter. God's going to pay back, and a lot of, he can do that through circumstances, of course, but he can also do it through the government. So there's no need for us to get all upset and take vengeance in our hands. Now, of course, notice the government is a, an avenger, as Paul says in this verse, 13.4. The government does not turn the other cheek. That Sermon on the Mount admonition referred to private relationships. The man's caught sleeping in adultery, sleeping with his mother-in-law in the church at Corinth when Paul told the church to kick him out. Can you imagine that man saying, oh, but I've got, you need to turn the other cheek. <laughs> no, the man did something wrong and need to be punished for it. Turning the other cheek does not refer to governments. We go to Romans 13:5. Therefore, you must submit not only because of wrath, but also because of your conscience. So there's two reasons why you can submit to punishment. First, because of wrath, that's the possibility of punishment, as the NIV has it. That's a merely pragmatic reason for obeying. You don't want to get thrown in jail. Wrath is here, is fear of what the government might do to you, but conscience is the fear of what God might do to you. And Paul says you need to submit for both reasons, not only because of wrath, but also because of your conscience. And of course, conscience is the moral and ethical reason for obeying Wrath from the government is the pragmatic reason for obeying. If more and more people in a society have a conscience, that makes it much easier for the governing authorities to rule justly because they don't have to spend all their time trying to rein in a bunch of criminal activity. And Paul says you must submit. The, the most obvious way to submit was to pay taxes. Jesus said that, Matthew twenty-two twenty-one. Caesars, whose image is on this coin, on the front of this coin, Caesars, they said to him, then he said to them, therefore give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So we're supposed to pay taxes to Caesar. Now, paying taxes to Caesar does not mean, and submit to the government does not mean to love the Roman Empire patriotically. No, it just means to pay your taxes. You don't have to love your country to obey. You don't have to love the Chinese government to obey it. Here's a good quote from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. The inalienable right of all subjects to endeavor to alter and or improve the form of government under which they live is left untouched here. In other words, you can protest against your government. To submit to the government doesn't mean that you disagree with it and say, I want you out, I want another administration in. But since Christians were constantly charged with turning the world upside down, and since there certainly were elements enough in Christianity of moral and social revolution to give plausibility to the charge and tempt noble spirits, crushed under misgovernment, to take re redress into their own hands, it was of special importance that the pacific, submissive, loyal spirit of those Christians who resided at the great seat of political power, that's Rome, should furnish a visible refutation of this charge. We go to verse 6, chapter 13. And for this reason you pay taxes, since the authorities are God's public servants, continually attending to these tasks. Paul says the government are servants of God. This is the third time that Paul declares government to be the servant of God or the minister of God. In Romans 13, 4, two verses earlier, he used the word twice. For government is God's servant for your good. For government is God's servant and avenger that brings wrath twice in verse 4 and once here in verse 6. God's servants attending to their task, which of course is executing wrath on evildoers, as the last two verses have pointed out. We go to verse 7, Romans 13. Pay your obligations to everyone, taxes to those 
you owe taxes, tolls to those you owe tolls, respect to those you owe respect, and honor to those you owe honor. Now, as I said earlier, paying taxes, pay your obligations, doesn't mean paying taxes only when you agree with everything the government is doing, because that way you would have anarchy because no one would ever pay taxes because nobody ever agrees with everything the government's doing. So we're supposed to pay our taxes even if the government is murdering babies and doing whatever it's doing. Tolls to those who own tolls, those are probably customs tolls between districts in Israel or maybe even tolls coming into Israel. That was very typical back then, importing and exporting goods. The taxes they had back then were poll taxes on your head, on individuals per capita, poll taxes. And then, of course, they had property taxes on land, supposed to pay that. Now, Jesus gave a good example of paying taxes, the temple tax, the two drachma tax, Matthew 17, 24 through 25. When they came to Capernaum, the collector of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He, Peter, said, yes. Peter, Jesus paid the two drachma tax. He never said, hey, I'm Lord of the temple. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I'm Lord of the universe. I don't have to pay a tax. Get out of here. He never said that. He paid. And he paid even though he knew the religious leaders were supported by the money he was paying and they were going to murder him sooner or later. And they did. He paid the tax even though he knew the temple system had become corrupt. Remember, he drove the money changers out. And he paid the temple tax even though the chief priest probably used that temple tax money to get 30 pieces of silver to pay Judas to execute Jesus. <laughs> so it was a lousy system, but he paid the tax. And he also said pay Rome, pay the Roman tax when it's due, pay Caesar what his due is. Now in verse 7, when Paul says that the Christians should respect and honor those who you owe honor, this is not money, this is uh, attitude. Let's look at some scriptures that show this. Acts 23, 5. I did not know, brothers, that he was a high priest, replied Paul. For it is written, you must not speak evil of a rule of your people. You remember Paul, is he's been dragged before the Sanhedrin. This is after his third journey in Jerusalem. And the witnesses, well, the high priest ordered somebody to strike Paul on the face. And then Paul looked at the high priest and said, you're a whitewashed wall. Which to me was quite appropriate. I thought I was pretty mild, really, but... Paul immediately apologized and says, what is written, you must not speak. Well, he sort of implicitly apologized. He says, oh, I didn't know he was the high priest. It was written, you must not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So you're not even supposed to say bad things about bad people. First Samuel 24:12. may the Lord judge between you, that's Saul, and me, David, and may the Lord take vengeance on you for me, but my hand will never be against you. In other words, I'm going to leave it to God to take vengeance on you, nasty Saul, but I'm not going to do it. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2. First of all, then, I urge that petitions, this is Paul writing to Timothy. First of all, then, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. 1 Peter 2, 17. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God. Honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. I don't know who's in charge here, but you know, they had Tiberius. He was a depressed, nutcase, murderer. Caligula was crazy. Claudius ran all the Jews out of Rome uh, after Claudius. And Nero was, well, he was the Antichrist, in my humble opinion, six, Mr. 666 in Revelation. he He's the guy that wrapped up Christians in animal skins and lit the animal skins and then put the burning Christians as torches around his garden parties at night. He was a monster. But Peter says, honor the emperor, the same emperor who is going to crucify Peter upside down 
and the mid-60s. We go to Romans 13, 8. Do not owe anyone anything except to love one another, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The NIV says, let no debt remain outstanding, and that's a little bit different than do not owe anyone anything. In fact, it represents two options of how you can interpret the first part of this verse. Do not owe anyone anything, and I must confess that the way I took it for years was, is don't ever get into debt. And by golly, I avoided debt like the plague, and I, and I believe it has stood me in good stead. And I never borrowed money for a car. I never borrowed money for the house and everything. But I had unique circumstances. Well, I believe God honored that. Let's put it this way, because several miracles happened. So like I got the house and the car. And I, I, I just don't. I just didn't borrow money, uh, and I think it stood me a good stead. But I don't believe that's what Paul means here. I think what it means is when you have a debt, pay it, and then whether you take a debt should be based on sense and economics. For example, borrow money on an appreciating house that might make sense. I mean, corporations borrow money so they can finance their assets, so they can sell goods and make money for the stockholders. They leverage their assets with debt. And, you know, and, and the, cor- the corporation is supposed to pay the debt, but it doesn't say a corporation should never take on debt. I mean, if you take this thing too far and say never take debt, if you went out and rented a house, the payment of the lease pay- of the rent to be paid in arrears, that means you would have the use of the house for one month before you paid, which would mean you owed something. You would be in debt to the landlord for one month's rent, and then you pay him at the end. Well, if you take the strict view of this, don't owe anyone anything, that means you shouldn't take a, a, rent, a leasehold like that because you're owing the landlord every month. So we don't want to take it rigid. And literally, it means if you owe something, pay it. And if you get yourself in a situation where you can't pay your debt, well, then you're violating what Paul says here. You're owing something that you're not paying. How about all those TV evangelists that think out on their bills that they owe to TV stations? I don't. I forgot where I read this somewhere. I wish I could remember, but I assume it's true that they have a notorious reputation for not paying their bills. That doesn't do the gospel any good. If you can't afford the airtime on TV, well, then don't get the airtime on TV if you can't pay your bills. Now, the Holman Christian Study Bible here in this verse, verse 8, says don't owe anyone anything except to love one another. And that's the way it should be, but the NIV Study Bible says that one another is mankind in general. I do not believe that. I believe it means love one another means love your Christian brotherhood, love the brotherhood. The NIV has love your fellow man. Well, fellow man sounds like, you know, love everybody in the world. Well, of course, we're supposed to, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about loving your fellow brother. The Greek word that's used there is aleleus, which is the is a, form, a grammatical form of aleleon, which Thayer and Strong's lexicon means one another. That's all it means is one another. Love one another. That sounds like loving one another, loving Christians. Loving mankind, that's had a little liberal twinge to it. Promiscuous love is not love at all. But at any rate, we'll move on. Paul at the end of verse 8 says, For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law, which means if you love one another, you're automatically going to do what the law requires. The law, in this sense, the law restrains one from hateful negative acts. Love impels one to do loving positive acts. So in at least one sense, when you obey the law, you're loving your neighbor because you're not doing evil to your brother, and therefore you fulfill the law. Now, he's talking about the law of Moses here, according to, according to the NIV Study Bible and Steve Ackerson. I agree with that, fulfill the law. But that doesn't mean 
that we're still under the law because when you fulfill a contract, the contract is over. When you fulfill the law, the law is over. We're now under the law of Christ. That's what we're to live by. The Mosaic law was negative. Do not, do not, do not. Don't steal, don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't co commit. But the law of Christ is positive. Do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. That's a positive command. Love your enemies. He, Jesus didn't say don't hate your enemies or don't kill your enemies or don't get angry at your enemies. He said love your enemies. Positive. I read somewhere that most religions and philosophies have a golden rule. Confucius has one. He's not, he's not a religion. He's a philosophy. But he says, don't do unto others what you wouldn't want done unto you. And it struck me when I saw that. It says negative. But Jesus was positive. So love means doing good things for other people as well as refraining from doing bad things. If you do, refrain, if you do what's good to somebody, you're automatically going to refrain from doing what's bad. And therefore, you're going to automatically do what the Mosaic Law requires. And therefore, you fulfill it. And therefore, we don't need it anymore because now we have the law of Christ. John 13:35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The mark of the Christian, my friends, is love. You love one another. I got a friend who, in his testimony, always talks about he he was a hippie, drug dealing, hippie type of guy, and somehow he got involved in an Assembly of God youth group in Atlanta. And the next thing you know, he says, "Man, these people really care about each other." These hippies, man, they're out trying to screw each other all the time. But these Christians love each other one another. That was 50, 60 years ago when he's still a dedicated Christian. Since then, just because he saw the mark of a Christian. We go to verses 13, 9 through 10. And Paul's finished with talking about submission to the civil authority. Now he's going to start talking about the Mosaic law and the Christian's relationship to it. It's related. It has to do with conduct, personal conduct. This whole chapter has to do with conduct. Paul, again, has left all the theological portions of his letter in the first part of the letter, Romans 1 through what? 11, I would say. And then when he gets to chapter 12 and 13, it's all about practical stuff. How do we walk in the justification and sanctification that we have? Romans 13 verses 9 through 10, the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment, all are summed up by this, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Paul is elaborating on his previous statement in the previous verse that love fulfills the law. In the previous verse, in verse 8, Paul says, The one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And then he elaborates on that in verse 9. The commandments, the law, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and so forth, are all summed up by this love your neighbor. So he's basically restating the same thing in a little bit more amplified fashion. And it's clear he's talking about the Mosaic Law because he mentions the commandments. He mentions four of the commandments in verses in verse 9. Now, when Paul says you fulfill the law by loving your neighbor as yourself, now here's a question as to what neighbor means. Remember the Good Samaritan? Some Pharisee comes up to Jesus and said, yeah, we're supposed to love our neighbor. Well, let me read that. Luke 10, 25, starting in verse 25. Just then an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He asked him, how do you read it? He, Jesus, answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So there's love your neighbor as yourself. And then willing to justify himself, the expert in the law asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Because, you know, he can love a Jew, but a Gentile? Uh-uh. Well, I think that loving your neighbor as yourself, according to the teaching of the Good Samaritan parable, is everybody, not just Christian brothers, not just your, your own spiritual kinfolk, but everybody. Now, love, as I often say, is not just an emotional fuzzy feeling. It's doing something for somebody. 
So therefore, when you do something or refrain from doing something bad or do something positive for your neighbor, then you're loving that person, even if you don't really like them that much. Now, love is in the Old Testament as well as the New. Here's the Old Testament, Leviticus 19.18. Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. That's a good verse for those who say that the Old Testament has nothing but wrath and there's nothing but love in the New Testament. There's some love right there in the Old Testament. Now, here's some New Testament scriptures about love. John 13.34. I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you must also love one another. What could put it simpler? You're supposed to be doing good for your Christian brothers and sisters. Love one another. James 2.8. Indeed, if you keep the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. And I take the royal law to mean the, the law of the king, the law of Christ, Christ's law, the New Testament, whatever Jesus and the apostles said in the New Testament. Love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. Galatians 5.14, for the entire law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's how you fulfill the law. Notice that Paul mentions four commandments, and then he says, and whatever other commandment. In other words, it's not just the Ten Commandments. It's not just four of the Ten Commandments. It's not just the other six commandments. It's any commandment that God gives. It doesn't matter what it is. If you love one another, you're going you're to keep that law. We move now to Romans 13.11. Besides this, Knowing the time, it is already the hour for you to wake up from sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Besides this, Paul says, besides what? Besides loving each other in order to fulfill the law. Oh, that's the previous verse. So we're supposed to love each other, fulfill the law, and besides that, we know what time it is, or what hour it is. It's the end of the present age, as the NFA Study Bible says, but I asked, the end of which age? The Jewish age or the end of the church age? Well, here's some options. It could be the end of the church age, which would refer to the second coming of Christ. Besides this, knowing the time that the second coming of Christ is about to come, it is already the hour for you to wake up from sleep because Jesus is about to come back at the end of the world. Now, I don't think that's true, and I'm going to tell you why in a minute, but the NIV Study Bible take that position, and the Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown do too. I think they're wrong. I think that it's referring to AD 70, the destruction of Jerusalem. Why? Well, because in Romans 16:20, well, that would make it the end of the Jewish age, knowing the time. In other words, knowing the time that it's the time of the end of the Jewish age. Romans 16:20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Well, there Paul is expecting something happen soon, Satan to be crushed, to suffer a crushing defeat. And that would, of course, refer, to, that would mean that our salvation is nearer than when we first believed, as Paul says in 13:11. Well, how about that word nearer? Our salvation is nearer than when we first believed? Well, I guess you could say <laughs> that if you first believed and then it's two or three years after that, then the second coming of Christ is nearer than it was when you first believed. I guess you could say that, but it sound, doesn't sound like that. It sounds nearer. It sounds near. And besides, in Romans 13:12, in our same, in the very next verse, it says the night is nearly over and the daylight is near. What part of near do we not understand? 2,000 plus years at the end of time is not near to the Romans. Well, now, you could say, well, they, they didn't know that the end of the world, the second coming of Christ, was going to be 2,000 plus years later. Well, if you say that, and that Paul meant the end of the world, well, then he made a mistake. So he's using the nearness of time to motivate the godliness. 2,000 plus years is not near. And, of course, if you say that Paul made a mistake, well, that has severe implications for the doctrine of inerrancy, does it not? So I, I take this to be, hey, we're going to get delivered from all this persecution that the, that's coming. 
One could object to that interpretation is, is that Paul's writing to the Romans, Romans, not Christians in Jerusalem, and they were the ones that would be particularly delivered at, the, at AD 70, but all Christians were going to be delivered when there was Jewish Christians all over the Roman Empire. In fact, they were Jewish Christians in the Roman Church. They were going to be saved from uh, the Jewish persecution of the Jews just as well as Jews in Jerusalem were going to be. And besides that, the Romans who also persecuted the Christians, they were going to be out of business in a couple of hundred years, and and everybody debates the end of the Roman Empire, but say in the 5th century, it's gone by then, either the beginning or the end of the century, 476 of the year I like. But at any rate, the point is, is they're going to be saved. And of course, I don't think this, of course it's not talking about their spiritual salvation, it's talking about their temporal salvation, their deliverance. And he might have been referring with deliverance to the bad things that government might be doing to them that they're supposed to submit to anyway. I don't know. That's just speculation. But I could be wrong about that. Maybe Paul is saying the end of the world, you know, Jesus is coming. So let that be an incentive to your good behavior. I just have a hard time believing it. Paul says you need to wake up from sleep. Time to wake up. It's time to get up. Sleep and night are metaphors for drunkenness, sexual immorality, bickering, and jealousy. Here's a good place in 1 Thessalonians 5, 5 through 9, where Paul uses that metaphor. For all, for you all are sons of light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or darkness. So then we must not sleep. In other words, get up, get out of the night. We must not sleep like the rest, but we must stay awake and be serious. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, we must be serious and put the armor of faith and love on our chest and put on a helmet of the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. So salvation comes during the day. Salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, it comes during the day. So whenever it is, they're going to be saved. They don't need to be involved in political revolutions and that kind of stuff. They need to obey the government and wait. Don't repay evil for evil. Wait for God's wrath to be executed at the time it's going to be executed. In the meanwhile, we need to keep ourselves morally pure. We go now to verse 12. The night is nearly over and the daylight is near. So let us discard the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now that near here is interpreted by most. The NIV study Bible, for example, to mean, again, as I say, the end of the world. Near? Does that sound near to you? 2,000 plus years? That just bothers me. The night is nearly over and the daylight is near. Let me give you a quote from the NIV study Bible. These texts, and they mention several that talk about Jesus' soon return, do not mean that the early Christians believed that Jesus returned within a few years and thus were mistaken. Rather, they regarded the death and resurrection of Christ as the crucial events of history that began the last days. Since the next great event in God's redemptive plan is the second coming of Jesus Christ, the night, no matter how long chronologically it may last, is nearly over. Well, that's some highfalutin rhetoric. <laughs> it's how you can take 2,000 years and make it mean near because it's next on God's pattern, next on God's calendar. Well, okay, that's the typical dodge that futurist evangelicals use to avoid the plain meaning of near. Who said the next great event in God's redemptive plan, plan is the second coming? Jesus predicted himself, AD 70, if you just believe the first three verses of Matthew 24, not one temp stone will be left on another. That's the next great event that Jesus was planning for, not the second coming of Christ at the end of the world. I thought we were supposed to take words as literally as if they were written 
with that intent. If they're written with literal intent, we're supposed to take them literally. Where is there any indication that near is to be taken non-literally in this verse? The night is nearly over and the daylight is near. I suspect it's either when the Jews went down or the Romans went down. Those were the two people that were persecuting the church. The Jews went down in 87 and the Romans went down in the 5th century A.D. It's one of the, one of the two. I don't believe it's the end of the world. And I'm happy to say that I have finally found a commentator who agrees with me. This is Adam Clark, who says that the daylight that's coming is the gospel age after 87, not the final state at the end of the world, not the second coming. So here's what Clark says, quote, The night is far spent. Heathenness darkness is nearly at an end. The day is at hand, the full manifestation of the sun of righteousness in the illumination of the whole Gentile world approaches rapidly. The illumination of the Gentile world. We go to Romans 13, 13 and 14. We'll finish up this chapter. Paul continues, Let us walk with decency as in the daylight, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual impurity and promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no plans to satisfy the fleshly desires. Now it's interesting to me that sinners in all times, places, cultures, anywhere, they all do the same type of sins. They carouse, they have a bunch of parties, they get drunk, or they get high on other types of hallucinogens or other kinds of substances that they want to abuse. Sexual impurity, oh my gosh, they think of every kind of sexual sin they can think of and they get engaged in it. Promiscuity, they quarrel, they're jealous. There ain't nothing new under the sun when it comes to rebellion against God. We're not supposed to act like that. Now, I don't believe that Paul here is saying that the or implying that the Roman Christians were doing that. He's just trying to protect them from their Roman environment. This is what people were doing in the environment. He was saying, don't get seduced by it. I don't think they were actually doing this stuff. And then when he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, he's using a metaphor. The NIV translates it as clothe yourselves with, as with a garment that covers the flesh so that the flesh cannot be seen. What can be seen on flesh? Boils, warts, beer gut, beer guts, appendicitis scars, Thunder thighs, rosacea and eczema, psoriasis, age spots, scars, hernias, basal cell carcinoma, melanoma. It's all kind of stuff that can get covered over when you put on a garment. And the point is, is that you cover over all these horrible sins that people do in the darkness, cover it over with Jesus. And that's the end of that. God doesn't look at all those sins. He doesn't see all that stuff on your skin. You know, when those sins are covered by Jesus, not only can God not see those sins, neither can Jesus, neither can we. We need to forget them because they're forgiven, they're gone, they're washed away. Adam Clark says of this metaphor, to be clothed with a person is a Greek phrase signifying to assume the interest of another, to enter into his views, to imitate him and be holy on his side. Here's some other examples in the scriptures, Galatians 3.27 for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ like a garment. Ephesians 4.24, you put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness and righteousness and purity of the truth. That, that, by the way, is you can't put on the new self since you already have the new self when you're born again. So it, actually, it sounds like you're putting on something that you've already put on. So it's you. it has to do with translation, you have put on the new self. The Greek for put on is indusasthai, which is a middle aorist infinitive. And as I got a quote from my grammar web page, Greek grammar, the aorist tense always conveys a single discrete action. This is the most common tense for referring to action in the past. So it's having been put on the new self. 
not put on the new self, not like it's an imperative, because we can't put on that which has already been put on. We've already been created God's righteousness. We've already put on the new man, the new self. Paul says we should not be engaged in drunkenness. Now, that does not mean that we're not supposed to drink an alcoholic beverage every once in a while. He never says that. He says drunkenness, which is very clear between taking a sip of wine and getting drunk. Again, these fundamentalist hedge laws that people put around an evil action to make sure you don't get drunk. It's true. If you don't drink wine, you're never going to get drunk. That's a hedge law. Nothing wrong with a little bit of wine, as Paul told Timothy, if your stomach is upset or whatever. Paul says to avoid sexual immorality. That, of course, is the, or sexual impurity. That is the first and number one way that mankind rebels against God because male and female, he, he created them. And then he talks about marriage there in Genesis and what is under attack like crazy today. People are living like barnyard animals. Notice that Paul says in verse 14, make no plans to satisfy the fleshly desires. That sounds like it's a premeditated activity that makes people want to go out and do all this drunkenness and sexual impurity and jealousy and quarrels and so forth. The ESV has make no provisions for carrying out the flesh. Make no provision for it. Here's some examples from Steve Ackerson. A man looks at pornographic websites. He's making a plan. To how am I going to get that stuff? It didn't just accidentally flash across his eyes as he's walking down the street, but he's going out to look for it. How about an alcoholic stocks up old liquor in his house? He goes out and makes provision for it. He goes to the liquor store and buys the stuff that he knows is going to bring him down. How about a woman who buys him modest clothing to get attention? That's not just an accident that she causes someone to that she gets attention in the wrong way. She does it on purpose. How about a fat person that stocks up on ice cream and cookies, making provision to overeat? In other words, you can avoid a lot of trouble. You're going to have sinful things cross your path that you don't plan for. That's bad enough. But when you go out and make plans for it, you just increase the temptation and the onslaught of the of the uh, of the sin. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm finished with chapter 13. In chapter 14, we're going to look at what Paul says about so-called adiaphora, the doubtful things. He's just finished telling Christians to fly right. Well, of course, the, what happens when you get involved in telling people how to behave morally? There's always gray areas. And so Paul is going to, after he's just given a blanket condemnation of obvious sins, he's now going to say, well, now let's talk about the things that aren't so obvious, things that are in between. We'll do that in the next audio, Romans 14. Hope you stay tuned for that one. Hope you enjoyed this one.